want to thank you, Highland Baptist Church, for inviting us back. We love being here. I was here for Joe's installation 20 years ago. I preached for his 10th anniversary. And now this one had been here several times in between. In addition to that, there are times when Jane and I come through Louisville. We love coming through Louisville. Stay with Joe and Terry. And we always try to stay over and attend services here. So we're usually here maybe sometimes once a year, uh, scoot into the pews and be among you. This is sort of a second home for us. So thank you for allowing us to be here. Now, look, I'm well aware that I'm following Walter Brueggemann from last week. You know, when I was a boy, popular cartoon TV show, some of you will remember, Bullwinkle. And at the end of the show, there was this parade that had gone by, and there was a guy with a broom sweeping up everything at the end. Well, I'm the guy coming along with the broom after Walter Brueggemann. But you know what? Following Walter Brueggemann, doing that with a broom, that's still great. So I'm honored to be here. Let's pray. Oh, God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Hear these words that are very dear to Joe Phelps. Sometimes there's a man. I won't say a hero, because what's a hero? But sometimes there's a man. And I'm talking about the dude here. Sometimes there's a man... Well, he's the man for his time and place. He fits right in there. These are the opening words to the movie The Big Lebowski. They are words so dear to Joe that he knows them by heart. Indeed, I think Joe's the only person I know who has the entire dialogue of the movie The Big Lebowski memorized, except for a few words here and there. It's uh, become the, with Joe's leadership, become the official movie of the neighborhood. There are six of us, with Joe, of course, included. They've been getting together twice a year for 27 years. And we watch it every time we gather for about the last 16 or 17 years, which is as long as it's been available on either video or DVD or whatever. But what's interesting to me is why is it that we're so taken with this movie? Why is Joe so taken with it? Why is Joe Phelps, who's known among clergy as the energizer bunny of pastors, so taken with the dude who usually never gets out of his robe and pajamas, who passes the time soaking in a bathtub, smoking a joint while listening to whale sounds? The narrator in the movie himself says that the dude was a lazy man, quite possibly the laziest Los Angeles County, and he says, which would place him high in the running for the laziest worldwide. Now, in contrast, Joe might be the most energetic man in Jefferson County. So why the attraction to the dude? Now, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this that sometimes there's a man for his time and place, and he fits right in there. And that's Joe Phelps and Highland Baptist Church for these last 20 years. So what's a hero? Now, Joe's the last person in this entire congregation or in this town who would ever consider himself a hero, which might be 
a cue on why he's attracted to the dude because the dude also doesn't consider himself a hero. But Joe and the dude, they both seek to have integrity. And for Joe, it's the integrity of the gospel. When I think of Joe, I'm reminded of the words of the Russian poet Yevashenko, who was told by someone that he was a brave man, and he responded, I'm not. Courage has never been my quality. But then he went on to reflect, but we live in such a strange time that common integrity can look like courage. Joe has integrity. He does the right thing no matter the cost. And I'm here to tell you something you already know, Highland Baptist Church. You have a real Christian for a pastor. But the irony is, Joe doesn't think of himself as a real Christian. He doesn't think of himself as brave. He doesn't think of himself as a hero. He thinks of himself as just a man, ordinary person, yes, an energetic one, but one who is simply seeking to be a follower of Jesus. Which brings us to our text this morning from Luke. Here's a story of two ordinary disciples walking on an ordinary road back to an ordinary village. This is partly why I like this story. And all of the other stories of the risen Christ appearing to the disciples, you know how it is. You go back and look at them. The disciples are always the big names, the heroes. Mary Magdalene, Peter, John, even Thomas. But not here. Here it's just two plain people who have committed themselves to following Jesus. They're not heroes One of them, we learn, is named Cleopas, somebody we don't know about beforehand or afterwards. The other, we never know that person's name. It could have been a woman. And they were not going to Jerusalem or Bethlehem or Nazareth or Capernaum, any of these other famous biblical places. They were going to this small village down the road, Emmaus. Ordinary people walking on an ordinary road to an ordinary village. Sort of sounds like us. It's the evening of Easter day, but all these ordinary disciples know is that Jesus, the one in whom they had placed all of their hopes, had just been brutally lynched by the dominating system of Rome, and they didn't know what else to do. There was nothing they could do but go home. The risen Christ comes along, starts walking with them. They don't even recognize him in their shock and grief. They're trying to put one foot in front of the other. You know, earlier this week, I was able to hear Congressman John Lewis speak, one of the most remarkable people in our country, a great hero to me. I've never heard him speak in person. You know, he was the hero, one of the great heroes of the civil rights movement. I've been rereading his memoir, Walking in the Wind, and Lewis retells the story, uh, remembers the story back in April through June of 1968 and the assassinations of Dr. King and Senator Kennedy in April 1968, John Lewis was working for the Senator Kennedy for President campaign. He was in Indianapolis uh, with the senator when he heard the news, the assassination of his dear friend, his brother, his leader, Dr. King. Lewis writes, he was the man who opened my eyes to the world. He made me who I am. And then just two months later in June in Los Angeles, Lewis was just down the hallway from Senator Kennedy when Senator Kennedy was assassinated. And Lewis concludes the chapter after 
Dr. King's funeral in Atlanta, and then after the funeral of Senator Kennedy in Arlington, Virginia, Lewis writes, I sleepwalked through the next few weeks wondering if I could ever put my belief and faith and trust in someone again. What could any of us believe in now? I didn't know if I could do this anymore. I didn't know if I could take it anymore. What had we come to as a nation, as a people, he wrote. Now, I think these two disciples in this story from Luke are like John Lewis, sleepwalking their way home, wondering if they could ever believe in anyone or anything again. And let there be no doubt that the empire of Rome was making it as clear as possible of what happens to anyone who tries to dream and work for anything different, anyone who tries to be uppity. They don't just kill you. They publicly lynch you in the most brutal and graphic way to send a message to everyone. Rome is supreme. It's all about power, and Rome has the power, and death rules. Now, in the New Testament, when you deal with death, there is biological, physical death. That's part of it. But that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. When you read about death in the New Testament, you have to think theologically and morally about it. In broader terms, death is um, a power. It is more than just physical death. It involves the death of our humanity, the death of compassion, the death and the destruction and the diminishment of all the creation and all that God intends for us to be and for creation to be. Death grinds human beings down. Death keeps us in bondage to ways that make us less than human, less than who God has created us to be. Death isolates us and abstracts us and divides us. Uh, Death is about bigotry and hatred. So, for example, the isolation and the separation kind of thing, we get a little taste of it. So when we're sick or we're depressed, there's this sense that we sort of withdraw into ourselves, and we have to do that in order to recover and get better. But we get this sense where our life is just focused on us recovering and so on, but it isolates us and abstracts us. This is why the church believes so strongly that you need to go visit people to keep those connections going, that the gospel of healing and wholeness and connecting is greater than, those, than, than the power of death that isolates us and divides us. So, in this passage of Scripture, there's more going on here than just the fact that Jesus died. Now, death shows up in our lives and in this world in so many ways. And our call, part of the calling is to that we, we practice the way of life in Christ so much to resist that. But sometimes we get overwhelmed. You know, one of the ways that we're not very good at resisting death is we get so frantically busy. And then we become so tired that we can't resist. Or we just give up and go along. And in so doing, we end up dying inside. Our moral conscience dies. Death pervades our lives until we become nothing more than a living death. One chapter before this, Luke chapter 23, Jesus is being crucified. Luke says that there was a big crowd, a multitude gathered to watch this spectacle of Jesus tortured and lynched. Luke does not say they came to cheer it, but Luke also does not say they came to protest it. They came to watch it. They came to just go along, just 
go along. So how many tortures and deaths on crosses do we have to watch before we just go along? How many shootings and lynchings? How many injustices do we watch and do nothing or say nothing before we become indifferent? All of the so-called little deaths and small injustices that we put up with, go along with, until we become used to them. And then we find our lives simply conforming to the ways of death. We live a deathly kind of existence. We just go along with the power of death in this world. So these two ordinary disciples are not simply grieving over the death of Jesus. I believe they have witnessed so much death that they've died inside. Death pervades their lives until they know nothing more than a living death. So when the incarnate life in Jesus comes walking along beside them, they don't see him, and I don't think we should be surprised. But the good news of the resurrection of Christ is that in the midst of our death and the pervasiveness of death around us intrudes the very one who is life, Christ Jesus. So the disciples talk to Jesus about all these things they've seen, all the death and despair they've known. And Jesus listens, but then he begins to teach them from the scriptures. And what he's doing is reinterpreting everything they know and everything they've seen by teaching them and showing them, reframing for them this different way of seeing and being and thinking. To use Walter Brueggemann language, a different way of imagining the world. And a while, they approach their home and they do a Highland Baptist Church, Joe Phelps kind of thing. Instead of just talking, they put their words to action. They invite this outsider, this stranger into their home to share a meal. Only when they start practicing what they're preaching are their eyes opened. They began to realize it when he's reinterpreting, but only when they put it to work or their eyes open and they see the risen life of God in front of them, beside them. Jesus becomes their companion, one with whom they shared bread. Jesus vanishes from them and immediately they turn around and head back to Jerusalem to share the good news. Now this is a great story of ordinary persons, not heroes, being transformed from the grip of death into the life of freedom. It's a story of the church. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also, says Jesus. And sure enough, here are two, and Jesus shows up. So people of Highland Baptist Church, let me chase a little bit of a rabbit. In my 27 years of pastor at Austin Heights, one thing I've come to believe that I didn't used to believe, I never really thought about it. But I have become much more sacramental in my understanding of the faith. A sacrament is simply that uh, when we do things in our faithfulness to Christ, God works in and through these actions in ways beyond our understanding and beyond our limited perspective. So, for example, in this story, when we break bread with companions, with strangers and immigrants and refugees, the living Christ shows up and transforms what's going on from simply a shared meal to a version of the Eucharist. Now this is something to remember, Highland. When you're feeling overwhelmed and powerless, when you don't think you can make a difference, when you're exhausted and you're in despair from losing all the time, 
and death seems to always win. You remember, there is more going on here than what you can see. Every moment you live in faithfulness to Christ, every decision you make, every child you teach, every worship service you attend, every visit you make, every counseling session you lead, every refugee you shelter, every missionary you support, every baptism you celebrate, every person you encourage, every nail you drive in building a home for someone, every reconciliation across racial division you seek, every prayer you offer, every song and hymn you sing, every note you play, every check you write, every stand you make, the living Christ is working in and through you beyond ways of our understanding. And so like these ordinary disciples in this story, we head out of the door to follow this crucified and resurrected Jesus and proclaim life everywhere we go in everything we do. So Highland, you are to live in resurrection power of life and stand against every injustice, oppression, and brokenness that's part of the power of death. You are to witness against evil in any form it takes. You are to be reconcilers where death has divided. You are to be healers where death has broken. You are to be combatants of life in a death-obsessed world. And your call is to sign up or step aside. And for Joe Phelps, for 20 years, you know what he's been doing? He's been signing you up. (laughs) He's an incredible pastor of integrity and vision who has led you in following the resurrected life of Christ in a death-obsessed world. You know the classic movie, all-time great movie, Casablanca. The end of it, Humphrey Bogart, Rick, is talking to Elsa, Ingrid Bergman. She's fixing to get on the airplane. The famous scene. And he looks at her and he says, but I've got a job to do too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be a part of. Elsa, I'm no good at being noble. But it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Folks, I love that movie and I love Humphrey Bogart, but the gospel of Christ is different from that. Because Christ and the gospel believes that little people's problems do matter. Ordinary people. It doesn't take a hero. Because when we sign up with the resurrected Christ, we join up and participate in God's problems and God's actions that are defeating the power of death that threatens the existence of this entire planet. Our little efforts... For life and love make a difference because Christ is working in them and through them in ways we don't understand. And you see, it is about life, the Lord of life, the resurrected one. And the truth is, he's the hero. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one true God, mother of us all, amen.